Can you feel the seasons changing? Can you feel the energy buzzing in the air? Well, even if you can't, one thing is for sure, you are locked into a brand new episode of People Are Wild. I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host, with no shortage of topics to talk about, but this week we're going to have to time travel a little bit. So, I have lit my Marty McFly prayer candle and listened to Huey Lewis and the News' Power of Love on a loop repeat for about an hour, so I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. Now let's go back to a simpler time, shall we? Well, before you fire up some share and turn back time, we're going to go back to the year 2014. And it wasn't that long ago, gosh darn it. Remember that, though, when the Ellen selfie at the Oscars became something everyone at your work decided to recreate on that Monday, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin consciously uncoupled, Pharrell Williams wore that weird big ranger hat that I can only assume was so huge because it was full of secrets. And more on point with where this episode is going, Ebola was quickly becoming a global sensation, but not in a good way like Pitbull. While a man might swear he has E. colda, aka when a man gets sick for once in their life and thinks that they're going to die, and while I myself brag on my online dating profiles that I've been Ebola-free since the late 1980s, let's get serious about a seriously awful virus. Ebola virus disease, which is more commonly referred to as Ebola, is a virus that causes hemorrhagic fever. So what does that mean? Well, if it sounds scary, it's because it is. Imagine when you last had some sort of viral illness. The flu, maybe, or a flu-like bug that took everyone out of commission in your household, like a well-placed people's elbow from Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You felt like a bucket of yuck, though, right? Fevers, nausea, horrible muscle aches, sore throat, headache, the works. Maybe you had to go to the doctor to get some medication to help alleviate your symptoms. So take yourself back to when you felt the worst in the course of your illness. Then add in having vomiting and diarrhea on top of fevers and body aches. Then add in that your vomiting and diarrhea you're experiencing has blood in it. Yeah, blood in your vomit or even blood in your stool can happen when you've got Ebola. Now your body's normal fluid balance is severely thrown off in a major way. Your blood pressure drops. Your fluid loss is to a point that dehydration starts to set in in a catastrophic way, and your organs start to shut down. In the 6 to 16 days since your symptoms first appeared, your body is now failing. Your bleeding can be present externally and internally. See, Ebola has about a 50% mortality rate, so the odds aren't great that your body is going to make it. Time is unfortunately not on your side. The virus spreads through direct contact with bodily fluids, such as blood from infected humans. Spread may also occur from contact with items recently contaminated with bodily fluids. Spread of the disease through the air between primates, including humans, has not been documented in either laboratory or natural conditions, which is unlike measles. Side note, vaccines save lives. Other side note, Real quick while I remember, I've been a little bit hesitant to take on the world of anti-vaxxers, but that's recently changed, so if you'll allow me to craft something truly unique and special, you bet your bottom I'll be coming for all those anti-vaxxers soon enough. But back to Ebola, which has recently made some amazing strides regarding a vaccine. Ebola can be transmitted via semen or breast milk, 
of a person even after recovery from the disease. They might carry the virus for several weeks to months. In fact, I seem to remember a story coming out about someone getting Ebola after having sex with a person who had recently overcome the disease. That's one hell of an STD. Now, fruit bats are believed to be the normal carrier in nature, able to spread the virus without being affected by it, which I wanted to say is how the virus in the movie Contagion starts, and Gwyneth Paltrow then goes ahead and spreads it to everyone and kills off most of the world's population. And if you're keeping track at home, that is two goop references in one episode. Hashtag blessed and grateful. Oh, and just real quick, remember how vaccines save lives in Contagion 2? Spoiler alert, vaccines save lives. Anyways, it's weird how science works. Back on point. Ebola can mimic other diseases such as malaria, cholera, typhoid fever, meningitis, and other viral hemorrhagic fevers. Now, let's pump the brakes because I got a little bit concerned reading about how there are more viral hemorrhagic fever diseases out there. Great, great, I'm going to sleep at night. That's a rabbit hole you might want to avoid. Or not, it's a choose-your-own-adventure books, and R.L. Stein taught us well with goosebumps. Now, the way to get an Ebola diagnosis is to gather blood samples that are tested for viral RNA, viral antibodies, or for the virus itself to confirm the diagnosis. So, that being said, there's a brief, like super brief, overview that's hopefully not too technical about what Ebola is. Now, keeping all this new-ish knowledge in your mind, bring yourself back to 2014. West Africa was in the midst of a horrible Ebola outbreak. They were relying on aid from humanitarian organizations, the WHO, and international medical missions like Doctors Without Borders to help with containment. See, that's the thing about viruses. Containment is key in slowing down transmission, especially when you don't have an outright vaccination to help with reducing instances of developing the virus. So let's say you haven't seen the movie Contagion, but unless you've been in a bomb shelter like Brendan Fraser was in Blast from the Past, most of us know that we are living in a reality where a virus like measles is being transmitted globally. If you would have told me when I graduated nursing school not too long ago that I would be in the middle of a measles outbreak, I would ask you, what? And seriously? But here we are. And while I would love to launch into a tangent about vaccinations, again, I will hold myself back and save it for a later time. But what I can say is that when you make sure to observe and quarantine people who might have had exposure instead of letting them freely travel, you are trying to reduce transmission on a bigger scale. So Ebola symptoms can start to show up to 2 to 21 days after an exposure. Now, in West Africa, many families would be under quarantine, the whole entire family or a whole entire housing unit, if there were concerns about exposure. Other family members and family friends were trying to get aid for their loved ones to get treatment by any means possible. And in doing so, they unfortunately increased their own risk of exposure to Ebola. Thomas Eric Duncan was from Monrovia, Liberia, which is the capital city of Liberia. Liberia also happened to be one of the countries during the 2014 West African Ebola epidemic that was hit the hardest. 
Thomas worked as a welder and a delivery driver in Liberia and had decided in 2014, in September, sorry, 2014, to visit some family friends. And while visiting family friends for some people can occasionally veer into needing a trip to urgent care due to sheer stupidity, you know who you are, or a freak accident or unforeseen illnesses where the prognosis is a full recovery, imagine if visiting your friends or family members would directly lead to the events that caused your death. For Thomas, on September 15th, 2014, he was staying with friends, one of whom was pregnant. The family was unable to call for an ambulance after the pregnant woman started to feel sick. Now, full disclosure, unfortunately, this woman later did die of Ebola, but at the time, the family was getting nowhere in getting her to the hospital in a timely manner. So Thomas stepped up and helped to transfer the woman by taxi to an Ebola treatment ward in Monrovia. Thomas rode in the taxi to the treatment ward with the woman, her father, and her brother. Four days later, on September 19th, Thomas took flights from Liberia to Brussels, then from Brussels to Washington, D.C., and finally from D.C. to Dallas, Texas, where he landed on September 20th. Now comes a little bit of a sticky situation. According to some reports, Thomas did not disclose prior to boarding his initial flight to Brussels, that he was exposed to Ebola on the airport questionnaire that was presented to him in Liberia. Now, I think it would be a lot of wasted energy to speculate about why he didn't disclose this if that was the case. So I'm not even going to go down that avenue. Let's zone in on the facts. September 15th, he was exposed to Ebola while in Liberia. And by September 20th, he was in Dallas, Texas, where he was visiting his partner and her family. Now, Thomas began experiencing symptoms on September 24th, nine days post-Ebola exposure. And he arrived at the Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital ER at 10.37 p.m. on September 25th. At 11.36 p.m., a triage nurse asked Thomas about his symptoms, and he reported feeling, quote, abdominal pain, dizziness, nausea, and a headache of new onset. Now, the nurse recorded a fever of 100.1 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 37.8 degrees Celsius for all of us, well, people who use Celsius, aka basically the whole entire world outside of North America. So the nurse recorded this fever, but did not inquire as to his travel history, as this was not a formal part of the triage protocol at the time. So just so you guys are all aware, this episode is part one of a probable two-parter, maybe three-parter, we'll see. Definitely two-parter. And I just want you guys to remember that little detail about travel history not being a part of the triage protocols in the hospitals in terms of what... I'll be talking about in the next episode following this. So now we go back to Thomas and a little bit after midnight, he was admitted into a treatment area room still in the ER where the ER physician accessed the electronic health record, which is the EHR or the EMR electronic medical record, where the physician noted nasal congestion, a runny nose and abdominal tenderness. What the physician seemingly never saw was in the nurse's note, which, just for reference, is where nurses can essentially free text events or quote patients or what have you, the things that are going on during a patient's course of treatment. Now, again, that is not in the triage part. It's like a free, like I said, it's a free text part. 
It's not necessarily something that doctors can sometimes easily access depending on what their charting system is. So in this note, it was found later on when they went through the records that were released to the family that they did mention, the triage nurse did write that Thomas had stated he recently came back from Africa. But again, we need to be fair towards the fact that computers sometimes don't actually help us. Technology is actually more complicating our lives, isn't it? And in healthcare, sometimes the charting systems suck. They just really, really suck. I've used a lot of them being a travel nurse. I have my preferences. There are a couple of them that have no positive qualities, and I don't know why we still use them in the hospital. They are basically MS-DOS. I'm telling you, these are like black and green screens. It's it's the most archaic system to chart on. But depending on what was at Texas Presbyterian, and I don't know what was there in their charting system at the time, it probably was harder to get to those screens or to those notes for the physician to see that detail about how Thomas did disclose that he had recently come back from Africa. But the fact of the matter is this, the physician that night didn't see that note. And so he continued on with his assessment of Thomas in his current condition. He asked him to rate his abdominal pain on a scale of 0 to 10, with 0 being no pain and 10 being the worst pain ever. Thomas ranked his pain at an 8. He was given Tylenol, and he was taken over to CT. Now, those CT scan results came back, and it was a scan of his head and his abdomen, and it showed no acute disease for the abdominal and pelvic areas, and unremarkable for the head, which translated means the scan showed nothing of significance that was abnormal or acutely concerning for Thomas. Now, lab results from the blood work that he had done resulted with slightly low white blood cell counts, low platelets, increased creatinine, and elevated levels of the liver enzyme AST. So for translation of that last little bit, it meant that his kidneys and his liver were working harder than normal. But of note was that his temperature had increased up to 103 even, which is 39.4 degrees Celsius. And on a temp recheck after the Tylenol was administered, his temp was down 101.2 Fahrenheit, 38.4 Celsius. Thomas eventually was diagnosed with sinusitis and abdominal pain nonspecific. He was sent home at approximately 3.37 a.m. with a prescription for antibiotics, which are not effective for treating viral diseases. But the doctors figured that he had more of a sinusitis and that a course of antibiotics along with following up with his doctor would be all Thomas needed. The big thing that needs to be stressed here is that Thomas was sent home in those early morning hours. However, he wouldn't stay at home. In fact, his conditions started to worsen. It became so dire that on September 28th, 13 days post-initial Ebola exposure, he was transported to the same Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital ER by ambulance. Thomas arrived in the emergency room at 10.07 a.m., experiencing vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and a fever of 103.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Within 15 minutes, the doctor read the nurse's note that said Thomas stated he had, quote, just moved here from Liberia. And this time, the doctor knew that Thomas needed to be tested for Ebola. 
The doctor described following a strict CDC protocol, including wearing a mask, gown, and gloves as he entered Thomas's room and began his assessment. In the doctor's notes, he wrote, quote, Patient states he has not been to any rural areas or funerals recently. Patient denies any sick contacts, end quote. The doctor then put Thomas on isolation precautions, meaning that everybody who entered his room had to make sure to wear a gown, gloves, and a mask. The nurses contacted county officials while the doctor called the CDC directly. By 9.40 p.m. that night, Thomas was experiencing explosive diarrhea and projectile vomiting. His fevers were uncontrolled and unrelieved by medications. Consults were called left and right. More doctors were now involved in Thomas's care. He was started on IV fluids to combat the dehydration he was experiencing, but there was no official definitive diagnosis. Possible diagnoses that he was being worked up for included malaria, gastroenteritis, aka when you have a wicked bad stomach bug, influenza, and Ebola. By the way, when I read that sentence in the article that summarized the hundreds of pages of medical records that were released to the press, which, by the way, I will link to the summary article in those show notes, that that one sentence of possible diagnoses almost read like when you search your symptoms on WebMD, you could be having the flu or it could be Ebola. Thanks a lot, Dr. Google. I feel so much reassurance. Now, at 8.28 a.m. the next morning, September 29th, the doctor noted that Thomas, quote, appeared to be deteriorating, end quote. That would be, unfortunately, a note that was a little bit repetitive as the days went on for Thomas. By 11.32 a.m. on that September 29th morning, he was suffering from fatigue severe enough to prevent him from using the bedside toilet. His fever spiked again to 103, and the chills were relentless through his body. A nurse's note that day said, quote, patient said he just doesn't feel good and doesn't want to stay in the hospital and expressed concern that the doctor had not been here to tell him what was going on, end quote. Thomas was getting lab work performed like clockwork, and the results were distressing. Blood tests revealed damage to his liver and kidneys, as well as having fluctuations with his blood sugar levels that were difficult to regulate. Influenza, hepatitis, parasites, and the big bad germ notorious for spreading diarrhea in hospitals, C. diff, were all ruled out. Now, side note, C. diff is one of those odors that you can smell on a person before a test comes back positive. I am 100% serious on this. There are certain aromas and odors that you never forget that you associate with certain conditions within the body as you work in the healthcare system given different settings. So C. diff is notorious in hospitals and nursing homes, and you can smell it. Once you smell it once, it's logged in that olfactory sense forever. Same goes for a GI bleed. And for some people out there, I don't possess this skill, but they can smell DKA on a patient from across the room. Now, just as for reference on that, DKA is when blood sugar is way too high and can lead to coma or even death if not addressed immediately. And now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure I should devote some future episodes to diabetes. Diabetes. Let's diabetes this. But it's something that you learn in healthcare. You become a bloodhound of sorts in scent detection about certain things. It's a fun party trick, but not really. 
And it's not a good idea to try and demonstrate this on a first date. Not that I would know from experience. I might know from experience. But back to Thomas. Test after test was coming back negative in terms of a diagnosis. At some point, he was transferred to an intensive care unit after all other patients had been evacuated. The next day, September 30th at about 2 p.m., the results that everyone had been waiting for came back. Thomas was diagnosed with Ebola virus disease. His diagnosis was publicly confirmed during a CDC news conference that same day. The healthcare providers taking care of Thomas had to do so now, wearing hazmat suits, and additional staff would be tasked with scrubbing his room with bleach. Now let me take a moment to express my utmost respect and gratitude for all those who work in hospitals and nursing homes everywhere, in environmental services specifically. You deserve a whole heck of a lot of recognition for the job you do with maintaining cleanliness in facilities. I have nothing but mad respect for you guys. Now, on October 1st, sepsis had set in to Thomas's body. Now, how do I describe sepsis in a way that's not too techie? How about I allow the Mayo Clinic to describe it? In their definition of sepsis, it states, Sepsis occurs when chemicals released in the bloodstream to fight an infection trigger inflammation throughout the body. This can cause a cascade of changes that damage multiple organ systems, leading them to fail, and sometimes even resulting in death. Now again, when you have sepsis, time is not on your side. Aggressive rehydration via IV fluids is initiated immediately. And that's what happened to Thomas. It was a race against time to preserve organ function and stave off full-blown organ failure. Now, despite all this, Thomas tried to keep positive. As a doctor's note stated, quote, patient requested to watch an action movie and states he's feeling better, end quote. Thomas had expressed that he might attempt to eat solid food, but by the time his meal tray arrived, he had lost his appetite. By the morning of October 2nd, Nurses noticed blood in Thomas's urine, and his stools were getting darker. Lab tests revealed worrisome signs of liver and kidney failure. And doctors suspected that Thomas was starting to slip into acute respiratory distress. But then suddenly, there was a hopeful sign. Thomas was hungry, and he had an appetite. At 3.45 p.m., nurses raised Thomas into a sitting position and gave him a snack, it was a packet of saltine crackers and two ounces of Sprite. In the nurse's notes on his record for that day, it was charted that, quote, patient states that he is happy right now, end quote. In the morning note on October 3rd, a nurse practitioner wrote during her rounds, quote, concern for liver failure, end quote, as nursing staff were trying to get Thomas to eat more solid food, albeit bland, but at one point, they even offered him ice cream. It was something, anything, to give him strength and nourishment. The nutritionist had suggested that Thomas needed to receive intravenous nutrition at this point, while the doctors turned to the CDC for guidance. The doctor's note for that afternoon painted a somber picture. Their interventions weren't working for Thomas as his kidney function continued to deteriorate. Doctors were at an impasse regarding moving forward with treatments for Thomas. 
They had seemingly exhausted all resources, as nothing was working that they had in their arsenal, so it was time to think outside the box. And they contacted Chimerix, which is a drug research firm based out of North Carolina. Now, North Carolina is home to many things. P.D. Pablo, barbecue you can be proud of, and an experimental antiviral drug that I'm going to try not to butcher the name of, Brinsidofovir. I'd like to return a vowel, Pat Sajak. So the FDA gave the go-ahead for the drug to be sent to Texas. They were desperate in Texas and wanted to throw everything and anything at this Ebola disease for Thomas. The ultimate goal was to get Thomas through this part and on the way to recovery. Now, if you think about it, the FDA was okay with letting an experimental drug being used in this process as an intervention for Thomas. Now, this was a drug that was not yet on the market, that was probably still in the final phases of testing prior to being approved formally. This was like throwing a Hail Mary pass with seconds left on the clock. Just after midnight on October 4th, the nurse's note stated, quote, patient is restless, coughing, end quote. Thomas was beginning to show signs of more acute respiratory distress as his oxygen levels began to drop. His organs were starting to fail, and his once improving condition now became a grim prognosis. Doctors had a decision to make, and they had to make it quick. Now, when you learn about medicine, you zone in on the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. If any of those are problematic, you need to address it and correct it immediately before continuing on with the rest of your treatments and assessments. In Thomas's case, his breathing was becoming more strained. It was an increased work for him to catch his breath. He was more distressed, and it would only be a matter of time before he was in full-blown respiratory failure. In a doctor's note, they wrote, quote, Patient's condition is life-threatening and without immediate intervention, would deteriorate. There's that word again. And so a tube was placed into Thomas's lungs to help him breathe and hopefully curtail any respiratory failure that had been looming. But this was essentially like seeing the tip of an iceberg, as below the surface, there was still trouble and turmoil. The human body can only hold on for so long, and can only compensate for so long when it's under a great amount of stress. And Thomas's body had been trying to hang in there for days. But later that morning, the shipment of the experimental medication that I cannot for the life of me pronounce twice in one episode, trust me on that, arrived and Thomas received the first dose. It was silver lining, maybe a glimmer of hope that maybe, just maybe, this was a miracle that everybody had been holding out for. The following day, Sunday, October 5th, the team of doctors in Texas consulted with their colleagues at Emory University in Atlanta about more courses of action and treatments they might consider. See, at Emory, at their university medical center, they had some experience with caring for Ebola-stricken patients. They themselves had cared for three aid workers who had been airlifted there from West Africa, two who had recovered at the time and the other who was stable. One of those survivors was Dr. Kent Brantley, a name that might ring a bell for some of you since he gave blood in hopes of providing the vital antibodies that would help those with the virus fight it off. Now, 
Just remember that name, log it into your brain, he'll come back in the next episode. But unfortunately for Thomas, Dr. Brantley was not a match, and Thomas could not receive a potentially life-saving blood transfusion. The next day on Monday, October 6th, Thomas's dialysis was upped in an effort to save kidney function and prevent full-blown kidney failure. By that evening, Thomas's mother, uncle, nephew, and Thomas's sister arrived at Texas Presbyterian. They were taken to the hospital basement, where they were allowed to see Thomas via a closed-circuit TV feed. His mother cried out in anguish upon seeing Thomas with the breathing tube in place hooked up to a ventilator. The whole family was distraught at his condition and prognosis. The next day, on Tuesday, October 7th, the family declined the doctor's offer to turn on the screen. They had also arrived with spiritual counsel with them. It was the Reverend Jesse Jackson who accompanied the family. Throughout that day, Thomas's condition continued to decline. His blood pressure was dropping. He wasn't oxygenating well, even with assisted ventilation. And his fevers were continuing to spike. He made it through the night. But on Wednesday morning, on a morning round, the nurses took his vitals. And his heart rate had dropped into the 40s. Nurses tried desperately via medications to raise it and in turn bring Thomas back from the brink, but it was to no avail. His body was exhausted. It could no longer compensate. And on that day, October 8th, 2014, at 7.51 a.m., Thomas Eric Duncan was pronounced dead. He was the first person ever to be diagnosed with Ebola on United States soil, and he was now the first person in the United States, to die from it. His family members were enraged amongst their grief. They couldn't even hold his hand or be at his bedside in general. He was promptly taken away from the hospital, and in order to prevent exposure post-mortem, he had to be cremated. The family wondered how the man that they called Eric, at all of 45 years, might have still been with them if healthcare providers had kept him when he first came into the hospital on September 25th. If someone might have picked up on something earlier that could have led to a different outcome for Thomas. They had stacks of medical records, 1,400 pages worth of it, that chronicled Thomas's hospitalization. The what-ifs were constant, and hindsight being 2020, it gave them a chance to reflect. And as they engrossed themselves in reading the medical records, his family became more frustrated. How could the hospital have sent Thomas home the first time? Why did it take so long to remove the other people from the Dallas apartment where Thomas was staying at when he got sick? Why was Thomas not given the same experimental treatments as the Americans with Ebola? And then they also found themselves having to defend Thomas's actions. Media speculating and accusing Thomas of lying to airport authorities and asking how could Thomas think to travel if he knew he was exposed to Ebola? But what if Thomas didn't even know he was exposed to Ebola? His family maintains that Thomas would never have boarded a flight if he had any inkling that he could have been exposed to Ebola. But Thomas Eric Duncan's death caused a massive ripple effect that exposed just how many holes existed regarding human errors that occur in healthcare. It also shined a bit of a light on the breakdowns that exist in hospital protocols. 
But this story doesn't stop here. Not by a long shot. See, Ebola had arrived on U.S. soil, and while Thomas Eric Duncan passed away tragically, that ripple effect of his death would soon thrust two nurses into the national spotlight, as they would find themselves fighting for their lives in real time. Now, that for a cliffhanger, right? It's not bad. But fear not. Part two will be released sooner rather than later. I promise you I won't take like a weird amount of time off. But speaking of the words later, I do want to express my thanks to all of you who listened and kept this subscription active as you waited out my impromptu hiatus. I am super stoked to be back in the saddle and creating new episodes that will hopefully continue to be interesting while medically relevant and sometimes just a little bit more fun. So I hope you all have a great week ahead. Practice random acts of kindness and remember to take the time to take care of yourself and check in with yourself daily.